You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Happy Mother's Day to the moms who are here. We're glad you've joined us. The purpose of this day, Mother's Day and then Father's Day uh, next month, is, of course, to honor the significant influence that our parents have on us. And one of those areas of influence is faith, what we believe about God. So in this series, we've been exploring the differences between the Christian faith and the other major world religions. But today we turn our attention to a difference that exists within the Christian faith, and that is the differences between Protestant and Catholic. Now, many of you were raised in the Catholic Church. Uh, Maybe your parents, if they're living, are still in the Catholic Church. Maybe you have siblings, family members in the Catholic Church. And so for you, this topic is personal. So I want you to know right from the start that the last thing I want to do this morning is put down the Catholic Church. I am, of course, not a Catholic, and this is not a Catholic Church, but I don't believe for a moment that we are the only real Christians, and they aren't. In both Catholic and Protestant churches, there are people for whom Jesus Christ is their personal Savior and Lord, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, As an influential part of the family, that family will have an influence on you. Your parents will have an influence on you. But when it comes to the matter of faith, like really every area of life, your decisions need to become yours. In other words, a faith that goes no deeper than just your family history is not an anchored faith. I would say this to anyone, Protestant, Catholic, or any other religion. And Jesus made this point clear when he asked his disciples what other people were saying about who he was. And so they began to tell Jesus what other people thought of him. And then Jesus, after hearing what these other people were saying about him, he turns to the real question that we all have to face. In Matthew 16, 15, he said, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? That's the big question. That's the most important question that any of us will face. And we all have to answer that question for ourselves. No one can answer it for us. Now, Catholics and Protestants have the same answer to this question that Jesus asked. We both believe that Jesus is God in flesh. We both believe that his death on the cross paid the price for our sins. We both believe that the grace of God is our only hope in this life and in the life to come. So what is the difference then between Catholic and Protestant? Well, to understand the differences that we're going to talk about this morning, we need to step back first and kind of do a a quick overview of the 2,000-year history of the church. So this will be very, very quick. We're going to talk about some of the significant events that shaped the church over the last 2,000 years. For the first 300 years, it was dangerous to be a Christian. It was dangerous to do this, to show up in church. You often paid for that decision with your life for the first 300 years. And the early church was really characterized by three significant words. The first word is holy, which doesn't mean perfect. It means set apart for God's purpose and different from the world. You can imagine if the decision to be a part of the church was a a physically or life-risking decision, you only joined if you really wanted to follow Jesus and be different than the world. So the early church was holy. Second word that distinguishes the church for the first 300 years is the word Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations. So the word Catholic speaks to the 
the scope of the mission of the church, it's not just an ethnic mission. It's not just a national mission. It's a global mission, a universal mission. And that's what the word Catholic means. The third word is apostolic, which means they were committed to the teachings handed down by Jesus through the apostles and recorded in the New Testament. The apostles were the eyewitnesses of what Jesus said and what he did. And they wrote what they saw and what they heard in the New Testament books of the Bible. And so the church added the New Testament portion to the Old Testament portion of the Bible to give us our complete Bible. But then in 312, Emperor Constantine claimed that he saw a vision, and here's a painting of that scene. He saw a vision of the cross, and he decided to make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that changed everything. That moved the church from being something illegal to being something required. Now, at first glance, you would think that would be a victory for the church, especially the persecuted church. But what it ended up doing was fundamentally changing the church for centuries. If you look back at those three words, it affected all three of them. Holiness began to be eroded because what had once been a gathering by choice now became a gathering by coercion. If you had to be there, that's very different than if you were risking your life to be there. And so the decision to be different than the world was eroded, and over time the church began to look almost exactly like the world. And the mission shifted. The church was still Catholic in its scope. In other words, it was still to the ends of the world. But the means by which the mission of God advanced, the mission of Christ advanced, was different. The church now relied on the power of force to advance, not the power of truth. And then authority began to shift. It shifted from the apostolic authority in the New Testament, and it began to shift to those who were in current power and leadership of the church. And then, after Constantine made this major shift in the Western world, then another major shift occurred in the West. And a period of time that's often referred to as the Middle Ages began. It lasted from about 400 to 1500 A.D., a massive amount of time. And there's a lot of subheadings in this section, and historians will cringe at me painting it broadly, but there basically is an agreement that this was not an advance of culture and society, but a retreat. This often is referred to a period of time known as the Dark Ages. And the reason it's called the Dark Ages is because the number of conflicts kept there from being any really real order. There was a loss of order, and as a result, a loss of learning occurred during this period of time. And during this time in the West, the church was pretty much the only organization to provide any kind of societal glue to culture. And so the leaders of the church, who became to be known as popes, began to take center stage, and they gained enormous influence and political power during this period of time. And what began to shift is what used to be discussions in the church about what this part of the Bible would mean and how to apply this part of the Bible. The, that was replaced with papal declarations of law. The Pope would simply make a statement, and it was kind of like an executive order. It became the law of the land, and that began to be more the focus than what the Bible was actually teaching. So over time, gradually, ideas began to be introduced that were not in the Bible, and they began to make their way into the life of the church. For example, the idea of penance emerged during this period of time. 
Penance basically says that a sinner must pay for their sin in this life, or if they don't pay for it in this life, then they get a second chance to pay for it in purgatory. Now, this is directly opposed to the gift of, of what uh, God's grace is through Jesus Christ, but this was a major idea that emerged in the church during this period of time. Now, neither the idea of penance or purgatory is found anywhere in the Bible, but this began, began to be a, a major thought in the church. And these two ideas led to, I think, one of the more bizarre, bizarre ideas to come out of this point of period of history, and that is indulgences. This is how indulgences work. It's a, it's a claim that Jesus and the saints lived such good lives that they laid up excess merit in heaven. And the Pope could access and sell this merit on behalf of the dead for a price. That's called an indulgence. So, for example, if your father or your mother died and you weren't sure if they had been good enough in this life and therefore you were concerned they might be in purgatory, then you could say for $1,000, you could reduce their sentence in purgatory by 10 years. That was an indulgence. It was actually a piece of paper that had the name of the person you were buying this indulgence for, the amount of the transaction, and the amount of years that were reduced from purgatory. Now, this particular idea came to a head in Germany in 1517. Martin Luther was a Catholic priest over a parish. Uh, it was a working-class parish, poor people. And what was happening at this period of time is the Catholic Church was building St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, in the Vatican. If you've ever been there, you can understand how much money they needed to raise to build this thing. It's amazing. And so the Vatican trained and then would send priests throughout the European continent to raise money by selling indulgences. And what these priests would do is they would gather the local parishes and they would lay the guilt trip on and say, how could you withhold your money and not take time off of your loved ones who have died from purgatory? And so Luther, as the parish priest, was listening to this. He knew how poor his people were. And he also knew this wasn't in the Bible. Luther knew Greek, the language of the New Testament. He knew Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament. He knew Latin, the only translation that existed of the Bible. So he knew his Bible, and he knew none of these ideas were in the Bible. And so having heard this sales pitch, basically, this fundraising effort at the expense of poor people, Luther just finally snapped, and he protested. That's where the word Protestant comes from. The root is protest. And he ended up starting the Protestant or the protesters movement. Now, he wasn't the first priest to do this. You can imagine there had been many protests against this kind of abuse of power and these ideas that weren't in the Bible. But a couple of things happened in conjunction with Luther's protest that made this one different. The biggest thing was the printing press had just been invented. Gutenberg had just invented the printing press in Germany. And Luther was arrested because of his protest, and he was sentenced to house arrest. And a, a wealthy prince put him up in a castle and gave him a room. And Luther spent two years in that room translating the New Testament from the original Greek language into the common language of the people, German at that time. And when he had completed that translation, the first thing printed on the printing press was the New Testament in German. It was the Bible. 
And so what happened was now the Bible began to make its way into the hands, not just of the priests or of the elite, but of the average common person. So what in past had been protests by priests began to make its way into the average Christian. And as they read the Bible for themselves, they could see how far off track the church had gotten. And they began to form new churches that over time, not initially, but over time became known as Lutheran churches after Martin Luther or Reformed churches because they really wanted to reform the Catholic church. All of the reformers, they're known, did not want to start something new. They did not want to break with the Catholic church. They wanted to change it. They wanted to get it back to its roots. Churches like the Episcopal churches, Methodist churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches emerged. So what is the difference between Protestant churches and Catholic churches? Well, there are many differences, but I want to focus on, I think, two of the foundational differences this morning. Difference number one is this, and that is the authority of the Bible. Now, let me be clear. Both Protestants and Catholics believe in the authority of the Bible. As Christians, we understand that the Bible is a unique book. It's not unique in that it claims to be from God, even though it's written by people. That's not a unique claim. You know, we've been talking about some of the other books that make the same claim. The Bhagavad Gita makes that claim for Eastern religions. The Quran makes the same claim for Islam. What is unique about the Bible is that what the authors said and what they did was verified in public. This was a public witness of events and words that were said. It was a record of history. God chose to reveal himself to speak to us in the flow of history through 40 different authors, 66 books, over 1,600 years. And the reason he did this is because history leaves a trail of verifiable evidence, and that's because history is a collective experience. It's something that we all see, and therefore it can be verified by many witnesses. For example, God used Moses to write the first five books of the Old Testament. But Moses was not just some guy who saw a vision and said, this is what God told me. Two million people saw Moses part the Red Sea. You don't get over that. They saw Moses announce each of the ten plagues before they happened to Egypt in exact order. So there was corroborating evidence to support the claim that God was speaking through Moses. And God did this same thing with 40 authors over the span of 1,600 years. And that's how we get the Bible. This is why the words of Jesus were spoken in public. This is why his miracles occurred in public. His trial was the trial of that century. Everyone who lived knew about this trial. The accounts of his death and his resurrection were a matter of public record. They're actually recorded in Roman history books. This stuff happened in public. So this is not Muhammad, like we talked about last week, alone in the desert claiming to see a vision. What you have to do with that is either believe him or not believe him. There's no evidence that you can go to examine. With the Bible, there's all kinds of evidence that you can check and verify. So both Catholics and Protestants agree on this, that the Bible contains the verifiable and authoritative words of God. But for Catholics, there is an additional authority to the Bible, and that is the words of the Pope. 
So for the Catholics, it's the Bible plus the Pope. Why? Well, during the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church began to change the meaning of that final descriptor of the church, and that is apostolic. Originally, it meant basically the New Testament, which was written by the apostles and was authoritative. But it came to mean a chain of authority that began with the apostle Peter, one of the apostles, and now continues through the popes. So it started with the New Testament. Now it continues through the popes. So when the pope speaks, the term is ex cathedra, which means from the chair. In an official capacity, the words of the pope are infallible, just like the words of God in the Bible. They carry the same authority of the Bible. So where does this idea come from? Well, it comes from something Jesus said. In Matthew 16, verse 18, here's what Jesus said. Speaking to Peter, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Catholics interpret this to mean that Jesus told Peter that he would be the first leader of the church, and that from him would follow an unbreakable succession of leaders, of apostles, of popes. The Protestants disagree, and they say, no, it's the Bible alone. Not plus the Pope, it's the Bible. In fact, the Reformers, like Martin Luther, there were many of them during this period of time, they had a phrase called sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. This was kind of their banner, their, their um, rallying cry, scripture alone. And the reason is because, well, what does a good Catholic like Martin Luther do when the infallible words of the Pope contradict the infallible words of the Bible? When the Pope says, there are indulgences and I have the right to sell them, and Martin Luther reads the Bible and says, no, you don't. You have to make a choice. They can't both be right. They're contradictory ideas. Martin Luther chose the Bible. And all the reformers after him made the same decision. So when Jesus said this to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, no one then, or really even later, ever thought of Peter as anything like a pope. In fact, the apostle Paul later even opposes Peter at one point. It's recorded for us in Galatians 2.11. Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he was clearly in the wrong. Wait, I thought he was Pope. Popes aren't wrong. They aren't infallible. Especially the first one out of the gate shouldn't be wrong. But clearly, Paul says Peter was wrong and everyone agreed. So then what did Jesus mean when he said this to Peter? Well, one of the principles of understanding the Bible is you don't ever want to take one verse and pull it out of context and come up with an idea. You want to read it in its context. And what Jesus said to Peter took place in a context. Peter had just answered the question that I read earlier, where Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say I am? In response, Peter's the first one out of the gate and says, you're the Christ, which means you're the Messiah. You're you're the promised one. You're the one that the entire Old Testament 
pointed to and prophesied about. That's who you are. And Jesus said, Peter, you're the first one. You're the first one to come to that conclusion. My father revealed that to you. But you're not going to be the last one. You're going to be the first of many. Peter, you're the first of many who's going to recognize this truth. And that is the rock. Not Peter the person, but what Peter said. That's the foundational belief that's going to build the church. Throughout the centuries, people like us are going to do the investigation. They're going to come to the conclusion, you know what? Jesus is the promised Messiah, the hope of the world. And those people are going to join the church. That's how my church is going to be built. So this is one of the major differences, the authority. For the Catholics, it's the Bible plus the Pope. For the Protestants, it's Scripture alone. It's the Bible alone. Now difference number two. The second difference is the conduit of God's grace. Now a conduit is a, a channel through which something flows or moves or is directed. So the question is, how does God's grace go from God to us as sinners? What's the means of transfer? How, how does it get from God to, to me or to you? John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is basically saying, this is the purpose of the Old Testament, and now this is the purpose of the New Testament. Sometimes people say, why do we even have an Old Testament? There's all kinds of weird stuff in there. There's weird stuff in there so that the New Testament makes sense. So God communicated his law through Moses. That's in the Old Testament. The first five books record what God says is right and what is wrong. You know, the best known part, of course, is the Ten Commandments. And it's through God's law that we discover the nature of our sin. It moves from just kind of this general vague feeling of guilt to, oh, that's what I did wrong, as you read God's law. And after God's law, the rest of the New Testament is people trying to keep it and failing miserably. And nations trying to keep it and failing miserably. The Old Testament is a record of we can't pull ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps. We, we are unable, we are too weak to do that. That's the problem of the Old Testament, which leads to the answer of the New Testament, the grace that came through Jesus Christ. Grace came through Jesus Christ. Grace is not saying, okay, you tried really hard, no big deal. No, it is God paying the price of our sin by taking on a body to live a sinless life and then dying in our place. The grace of Jesus is the only answer to our sin. That's the point of the New Testament. Now, Catholics and Protestants both agree on this. The question is, again, how does that grace make its way to an individual life? I mean, think of it like a bank account question. You got a million dollars of grace in the bank. How do you access it? You get an ATM card, you have to write checks. How do you get that money to you? How do you get God's grace to you? For the Catholics, it is the sacraments of the church. That's how the grace is delivered to the individual person. The grace of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, his mercy, is transferred to the individual life through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Now, the word sacrament comes from the Latin word for holy or sacred, its root. 
And these are the activities by which the grace of God is transferred to the life of a sinful person, making them holy in the sight of God. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Here they are. Number one, baptism. This is what Jesus commanded his followers to do as a public declaration of their faith in Christ. We did this right out here last week. Sacrament number two, the Eucharist, or as it's often referred to maybe as the Holy Communion. This is what Jesus commanded his followers to do to remember his death on the cross. We often do this as a church. Sacrament number three is confirmation. Confirmation is when a baptized person, because in the Catholic Church it's usually an infant baptism. The infant has no idea what is happening because they're infants. So confirmation is the chance for a person, once they reach the age in which they can come to their own conclusions, they confirm in reverse the decision that their parents made when they baptized them. That's confirmation. Then there's usually a process that, that, that involves. Number four is confession. Your sins are confessed to a priest. Number five it's called extreme unction. This is basically prayers for the sick. Number six is marriage. That's obvious. Number seven is ordination. This is admission into the priesthood. Those are the seven sacraments. Now, Protestant churches differ in how many of these seven they practice. But they all do the first two. Because the first two are the only ones that you can really find in the Bible. These are the ones that Jesus commanded. Baptism and Communion. Now, here's the point you need to see. None of these seven can be done by yourself. These are done in the context of the church. They require the Catholic church to administer them. This is why it is such a big deal for a Catholic to leave the church. Because by leaving the church, they're not just leaving a church. They are leaving the grace of God. They are stepping out of the stream of God's grace. This is why it's such a big deal for a Catholic to get a baby baptized, to get their grandkids baptized, because baptism is how you step into the stream of God's grace. And so for those little ones, if they're not baptized, then there's no grace, is what the Catholic Church teaches. Now, if you were raised Catholic, this, I think, will help you understand why it was most likely hard news for your parents when you left the Catholic Church. Maybe why you didn't tell them, or maybe why you still haven't told them. Because to a Catholic, you didn't just stop going to one church or start going to another church. You know, for Protestants, we're like, oh, okay. But for a Catholic, to leave the Catholic Church and go to a non-Catholic church... You just stepped out of the grace of God. And there is no grace apart from the Catholic Church. Now, that sounds pretty arrogant now. But I want you to understand that a thousand years ago, this was actually a practical reality. Back then, a thousand years ago and before, it was impossible for an individual to encounter the truth of the Bible without the church. You needed the church to even know what the Bible said. Why? Because the Bible wasn't available widely. I mean, if you want to read the Bible now, you can do it this afternoon on your phone. There's apps. Just download the free app, start reading the Bible. 
You do not need the church to read the Bible. You don't have to come back here and have someone read it to you. You can do that all by yourself. But back then, you needed the church to read it for you. Because all the copies of the Bible were handwritten, which means they were very expensive. Only the extremely rich could afford a copy of the Bible. In addition to that, especially during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, illiteracy was widespread. Hardly anybody could read. So even if you could afford a copy of the Bible, you probably couldn't read it because you didn't know how to read. And beyond that, the only translation of the Bible that existed was, was Latin. And very few people knew Latin. So the church developed rituals. The Catholic Church, which was the only church at this time, developed rituals to help people learn the Bible and practice their faith. This is why if you walk into the Catholic churches and cathedrals of Europe and even of this nation, you will see the stories of the Bible painted on the ceilings and reflected in light through the stained glass windows of that church and in sculptures placed around that church. It wasn't that the artists of the day had no other topic other than the Bible to paint or to sculpt. Have you ever wondered why for thousands of years it seemed like that's all they ever painted, that's all they ever sculpted? Why? It's because the church paid them, commissioned the artists to paint and sculpt the Bible stories so that the masses could see the Bible even though they couldn't read it. It was a good thing. The problem, though, is that over time, the church subtly began to replace the Bible, and these activities, these sacraments, began to replace our personal faith in Christ. So on the other side, the Protestants said, no, it's not the sacraments of the church that bring the grace of God. It's the faith of the individual believer. God's grace is a gift that we accept individually by faith, which simply means, yes, I believe this is true. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus paid the price. I accept that gift. That's all it takes. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is one of the clearer places. There's many in the New Testament. But it says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through what? Not the sacraments, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. You can't look at what you've done and say, that's why I'm a follower of Christ. That's why I'm forgiven. No, it's the kindness of God on behalf of, you, on behalf of Christ that is why you're forgiven. God's grace is a gift, which means it's not something I can earn. So for the Protestant, salvation is, I'm describe it this way, it's a Jesus plus nothing plan. What do you need to be forgiven? Accept Jesus. I don't need to do anything else beyond that. Now, honestly, we're a little irritated by that because we, we feel like we should do something. But the New Testament is clear. None of us are good enough. Jesus is our only hope. So for the Protestants, it's Jesus plus nothing. For the Catholics, it's more Jesus plus something plan. You got to do this, you got to do that. Got to do the other thing. Basically, the sacraments. Grace, the definition of grace is God's unearned favor. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's been offered to us, and now we can accept it. 
Romans 11, 6. I love the way it says this. And if by grace, we've been forgiven by grace. If we've been forgiven by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Because if it's grace plus something, then you've just changed the definition of grace, is what it's saying. This is the big divide. Are you saved? Are you forgiven by your faith in Christ or by your involvement in the church? So that brings us to the last part. What can we learn from each other? I think there's something that Catholics can learn from us, and I think there's something we can learn from Catholics. What is it? I think the Catholics can learn from us that our relationship with Christ is personal. Now, I don't mean emotional, but like all meaningful relationships, it affects who you are as a person, what it is you value and how you think. It's easy for those in the Catholic Church to make their relationship with Christ more transactional, more about doing this and doing that, being a good Catholic. It's more about what I do. It can easily become about a list of things they do, but it doesn't change them. And oftentimes, I find Catholics need to be reminded, at its core, it's a personal relationship between you and Jesus Christ that changes you. What about Protestants? I think we can learn from our Catholic brothers and sisters that our growth in Christ requires the church. Protestants often need to be reminded that the church isn't just an occasional feeding station for the spiritually hungry. If you listen to a Protestant talk about church, they're often talking about, oh, I was fed there, and I'm really, I'm really growing there, and they, they, they almost talk like it's kind of like they're getting their Tesla charged up at a Tesla station. And as long as their battery's fine, they don't need to stop and get anything. So it's just, it's kind of for them. And that misses the point of the church. The church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And just like the parts of our body, we can't thrive and grow without the other parts alone. Now, we need the church not to be saved, not to be forgiven, but to grow in our salvation. See, Protestants tend to take the Jesus plus nothing plan and they turn it into the Jesus plus do nothing plan. That's our fault. That's our failure. And they miss the whole point of God's kindness and grace. The New Testament describes our relationship with Jesus, the church particularly, like a marriage. So those of us that are married... You decided to get married. Was that the end of your marriage decision? No. What happened next? Well, then you've spent the next however many years you've been married learning how to be married. Right? You made the marriage decision. Now you've got to figure out, okay, how do I do this? How do I be married? Now, what you do or don't do in your marriage doesn't make you more or less married. You're married. You made that decision. What it does is it makes you more or less miserable, right? <laughs> and it's the same thing with the Christian faith. You accept Jesus by faith. At that point, you're a Christian. You're saved. You're forgiven. And what you do or don't do from that point doesn't make you more or less saved. Again, like marriage, it makes you more or less miserable. It is in the church that we learn how to live like saved people. It is in the church that we find joy in Christ. 
We need the church. Our Catholic brothers and sisters often know that better than we do. So now it's down to you and all of us. We need to decide what we believe about God's word. Is it the Bible alone or is it the Bible plus something else like the Pope? You need to decide what you believe about grace. Does it come through Jesus Christ and your faith in him and nothing else? Or does it come through Jesus with a little supplemental plan of extra effort on my part so I can feel better about myself? You need to decide. But staying in no man's land is not an option. The Bible is very clear on this. You need to find a church and join it and invest in it and pray for it and support it and go through the ups and downs with it like marriage and serve it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for many blessings that we enjoy today because of the history of the Catholic Church. We wouldn't really even have accurate manuscripts of the Bible if it wasn't for many of the monks that gave their lives to, to save copies of the Bible. And on and on it goes, many blessings. Father, I pray for each of us that you would help us to make our own decisions about what the Bible teaches and how we're going to follow you. And then I pray that you would help each of us to just take steps forward and not just coast in our relationship with you. Jesus, we thank you for the grace that none of us deserve, that you paid dearly for. And we pray this now in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.